Well, good morning, church. How is everybody this morning? Doing good? Wonderful. Glad that you're here. Uh, My name is Cody King, and I'm the campus pastor here. Uh, If you're a first-time guest with us, uh, it is uh, wonderful to have you hanging out with us this morning. Uh, So welcome, everybody, here in Edgewood. I want to say welcome to those that are joining us in Wills Point this morning, those that are joining us online. We're very glad that you're spending some time with us this morning. So uh, a couple weeks ago, a couple, two, three weeks ago, we... um, in this series, God in Our Everyday Lives, we looked at a foundational component of that thing. If we were to add God or include God in our everyday lives, that's going to begin foundationally with an abiding with Him. And out of that abiding, we looked at prayer, uh, connecting with Him through prayer, connecting with Him through uh, His Word. But the idea is that we should be loving God with all of our heart with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. The greatest commandment is what we have there. The great commandment, number one, first and foremost, is that you and I should love God with all of our heart, soul, mind. Deuteronomy says, adds strength in there as well. The four components of our life that we should love the Lord with. And then out of that love comes everything else. If we're to include God in everyday lives, it has to begin right there. But this morning, I want to look at the Second part of that commandment. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 22. And as much as we need God in our everyday lives, in our everyday lives, one thing or many things in a way that we're constantly and always will encounter in our everyday lives is other people. There's no way at this point in our lives... There's 8 billion people on the earth that we're going to be able to go our days without encountering those other people. So as Jesus gives the great commandment to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, he adds to that. Read this with me in Matthew chapter 22, verse 34 and following. It says, but when the Pharisees heard that he, Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, he gathered to, or they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. He says, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. He says, This is the great and first commandment. So the lawyer asked him this question. He says, What is the great commandment? As if there's just one. Out of all the commands within the law, there's just one that is the great commandment. And Jesus responds to him. And tells him that this is the great and first commandment. But then he adds to it. He says in verse 31, now the second or a second is like it. So not only is there just the great commandment, but he says a second commandment is like the first. In that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he says on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So everything that was given in the law, this lawyer, this Pharisee, this lawyer, this smart guy who understands God's law, Jewish tradition, seeking to test Jesus, he asking this question, which is the great commandment, Jesus answers his commandment. But Jesus, as he always does, he expands God's law. God's word tells us that Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And he fulfills the law that he is the embodiment of everything that's given in it. And Jesus, in that way, always raises the bar. 
There's never a lowering of the the bar when it comes to Jesus and God's law and God's command. But in this case, he answers plainly, this is the great and first commandment, that we would love the Lord your God. But the second is like it, is that you should love your neighbor as yourself. And then all the law and the prophets, they depend on these two things. Now, why is it that they depend on these two things? But if you're a scholar of the law, much like this lawyer who's seeking to test Jesus, you would see in the law that every bit of it is written for how we relate to God and how we relate to one another. Every single law that was given falls in under that rubric that you and I would learn how to respond to God properly and how we would respond, learn to respond to other people properly. If we were to just look at the Ten Commandments, the first four of those Ten Commandments have to do with how we relate to God. We should have no other gods before him. We should not make a graven image or a carved image of God. We shouldn't take his name in vain. We should keep the Sabbath and keep it holy. But those four are how we relate and how we love God. The remaining six have to do with how we respond to our fellow man and how we seek to love one another. If we really properly love one another, well, we're not going to be murdering one another. We're not going to be committing adultery against one another. We're not going to be coveting one another's things if we're properly, truly loving one another. So Jesus sums these two things up on these two commands, depend all of it. You do these two, you do well on the rest of them. But look what Paul says to the Romans in verse 13 regarding the law. He says, owe no one anything except to love each other. He says, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And he says, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Paul draws that same conclusion. And then verse 10, he says, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore... Love is the fulfilling of the law. To the Galatians, he says in Galatians 5, he says, For you were called the freedom brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, as in serving yourself, but through love serve one another. Verse 14, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Draws the same conclusion to a different church. James, the brother of Jesus, in James chapter 2, verse 8, he says it this way. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, you are doing well if you do this thing. But it's the fulfillment of the law. And the way you and I love God, and the second part of that love is the way we love our neighbor as ourselves. But now that bears the question. We don't have to be scholars of Jewish law. It's good to understand those things. But also understand we will do well to love God and love other people. But how often, if we've grown up in the church, we understand that thought. Probably heard that before. Hey, what are you supposed to do in life? As a Christian, what should your life look like? Well, I should love God and love others. Yeah. And that's a simple statement. But when it comes to the practical application of that statement, it can become a little muddy and a little difficult. When it comes down to the question of who is actually my neighbor in this, anybody ever asked that, wondered? When we come to that second question, if we're to love our neighbor as ourselves, well, who's my neighbor? Who can I get away with not loving? Because <laughs> we all have somebody. In our everyday lives, we encounter a lot of different people. And the question is, oh, wait, I'm, sorry, I'm meant to love all of these people? 
that second cousin twice removed on my mom's side, that dude. But we, we search for ways. How do I get out? Who can I not love? Who can be excluded? Where is the limit? Where is the limiting principle to this law? So we ask ourselves, who is our neighbor? Well, the law would indicate a specific people. If you were to look at Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, the law says explicitly, says, you shall not take vengeance or bear grudge, a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He says, I am the Lord. This is directly where New Testament writers, Jesus, Paul, James, they get that command, comes right there from Leviticus 19, 18. But he says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against who? He says, the sons, the law says, the sons of your own people. So you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So in this, it's implying that the neighbor within Jewish tradition is the Jewish commonwealth. Is any person that calls themselves a Jew or is part of the Israelite nation would be the neighbor to which you are to love. Everyone else, no, according to what the law specifically says. In the Old Testament and actually throughout history up till Jesus in the establishment of his church, there were two peoples that existed. God established the nation of Israel, his holy nation, the Jewish people, was one people, and then there was the Gentile, which was everybody else who was not a Jew. So in this regard, according to the law, when you ask the question, who's my neighbor? The law says, Jewish tradition says, that it is Jewish commonwealth that you're to love. That's your neighbor. Everyone else, whatever you want to do there, seems to be the implication. Paul, he would indicate a specific people as well if you just take what he says at what he says. Though we know from Paul there's an understanding of Scripture, but when you read the text, here's what Paul says. He says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. So Paul's writing to the church, and he's telling the church, hey, we should speak truthfully with one another, be honest with one another, we should be loving one another, loving your neighbor. But he says, for we are members one of another. We're members of one body, as he's writing to the church. So the implication could be, if you're not taking context in the full teaching of scripture you could read into that that now our neighbor is just those within the church at one point in time god gives law to the jewish nation he says those of your own people this is your neighbor if you take it paul what paul says without the understanding of the rest of scripture you're going to look at a specific people paul saying that we should love one another within the members of the church so my neighbor now becomes the member of the church to the exclusion of everyone else but i want us to look at what jesus says not saying that Paul's wrong or the law's wrong. Remember, the law was fulfilled. But Jesus went to indicate differently. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 and following. Jesus says, you have, you, have heard, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So there's a teaching within Jewish tradition. They take that law, you should love your neighbor, but you should hate your enemy. Now, the Jews, they're under Roman occupation. They're oppressed, they're persecuted by the Romans. That's their enemy. To the Jew, they're certainly not our neighbor. I should hate that person for what they're doing to us. They're the sinful, unclean heathen. God hates sin. God hates all that stuff. Therefore, God hates them. We should hate them. But Jesus says here, and he gets to the heart of it. You have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. 
He says, so that, there's a reason for him saying that in verse 45. He says, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Now for the Jew at the time, Jesus makes a statement. You've heard it said, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. I'm telling you, you should love your enemy. And in so doing, this is how you know that you're sons of the father. For the Jews, like, I'm a son of the father. I've been a son of the father my whole life. I'm a Jew. How are you saying that now? But Jesus, again, he doesn't diminish the law. He is always raising the bar and expanding the truth of God's word for God's people. We should love our neighbors, but he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then he says, for he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. The whole, the whole question of why do good things happen to bad people? God causes it to rain on the just and the unjust. The sun rises on the evil and the good. But he says in verse 46, he's for, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Jesus draws this conclusion. Don't, doesn't the heathen, the tax collecting sinner, he loves his family. Yeah, so what good does it do you if you're just loving your family? Because they do the exact same thing. Verse 47, and if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. He says, therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So here, Jesus broadens the commandment. It's not just the specific people. It is everyone, everyone everywhere. And at root, he begins to reverse the question of who is my neighbor to get people to begin processing through, well, who is not my neighbor? But the implication is no one is not your neighbor. Everyone is your neighbor. If you're to love your enemies... Who's off the table at that point is the idea. Heinrich Grieven, in an article in the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, he says this. He says, by nature, love is not primarily act, but being. Being a son of God, being perfect as the Father in heaven is perfect. The love which springs forth from being loved is quite incapable of asking about any limits. Jesus throws it right in the lap of God's people. He says, your purpose was to be a light to the nations. You're a holy nation. You're a royal priesthood. It's what the nation of Israel was meant to be. They're meant to be the glory of God to the world. But yet they're trying to put limits on God's law and who it is they're supposed to love. And he lays it right back in their lap. No, if you're a child of the Father, if he is in you, if you've been loved that much, why are you trying to put limits on that love to anybody else? Out of you is the idea. So here we have the transcendence of that commandment, and it's implied in this. But elsewhere, Jesus gets much more explicit in that. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 10. I want to read this, this parable with you, and it may be familiar to many of you. But Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. It says, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. So different lawyer, maybe the same lawyer, but he's seeking to do the same thing to Jesus. But a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he nailed it. I mean, hit the, hit, the, hit, hit the nail right on the head. 
What's the law say? How do you read it? Well, Jesus, this is how I read it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Conversation should be ended right there. Jesus is like, yep, exactly right. You got it. Nailed it. Good stuff. Do that. But, verse 26, he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, this question, who and who is my neighbor? So he believes he understands. He believes he knows the answer to this question. And again, he's trying to test Jesus to see what Jesus says. But let's look at what Jesus says in response. Jesus replied, he says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, this would be the Gentile Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he sent, set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And Jesus asked him, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. See what Jesus does from this? See, the lawyer's out here. The lawyer's view is this grand scope, but in his view is only the Jewish people. What do I need to do, Lord, teacher? What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? What does the law say? Well, this is what the law says, and Jesus pulls it in. And he pulls it in, and he puts it right where the problem actually lies in every one of us. As we ask the question, who is my neighbor? Who am I supposed to be loving? Jesus takes it to you and you're the neighbor. How do you be the neighbor? But the lawyer wanted to discuss the neighbor in a general way, but Jesus got specific. Warren Wiersbe, he notes this. Uh, he says how, how easy it is for us to talk about abstract ideals and fail to so help solve concrete problems. He says, we can discuss things like poverty and job opportunities and yet never personally help feed a hungry family or help somebody find a job. He just draws his conclusion to how we can generalize this in many ways. What are we supposed to do as a church? What's the Christian life supposed to look like? Well, we need to love God and love other people with this big general stroke. And that's our response. And we say we live that way. But many times we fail to specifically meet needs that are around us. But we feel justified in our understanding of what we're supposed to do. And we can miss the things to do in the middle of it. So it's not about how we view the general population. But rather it's about how we see individuals. Because if we look at our general population right now, the culture that we live in, we see the brokenness, we see the depravity, we see the downward spiral that we're culturally headed. But we can also stand back here and do nothing with the general idea that, well, we're meant to love those people as we love God, but never engage with the individual 
in those people because we don't see the individual and the needs that are there because we're not looking for it. And that's the challenge for us. As we seek to love God and love others as ourselves. we put that in practice by viewing individuals the way Jesus does. And Jesus hits this lawyer right in the middle of it. So we look here and Jesus says, no, look at that man that's in need right there. How do you tend to him? To the thieves, this traveling Jew was a victim to exploit. So they attacked him. To the priest and Levite, he was a nuisance to avoid, so they ignored him. But to the Samaritan, he was a neighbor to love and to help, so he took care of him. Now imagine for that Samaritan the sacrifice of his time, the sacrifice of his money and his resources. It doesn't say how far this man was from the inn, but I imagine it wasn't 100 yards. Even if it was, he took of his time, his resources, he took of his talent and his knowledge and understanding to bind the man's wound, to pour on oil and wine, to set him on his own animal, to however far away the inn was, to take him to that inn, pay for that man to stay there. And he did it because he understood that need is right there and he had compassion and he knew I can meet that need and he was willing to act on it. Instead of either turning his heart against that need Or in some way I might say worse, thinking someone else will do it. That is a challenging thought even for my heart, is that idea. I see a need, I understand that I probably could. Somebody else is better than I am at it. And they'll come along. And that is painful hope that is unfounded when we seek to love other people. Again, Heinrich Grieven, he says this. He says, the story of the Good Samaritan shows that one cannot say in advance who the neighbor is, but that the course of life will make this plain. Because you and I are going to encounter people every single day. We're going to be in the presence of needs every single day. And the course of life will make this plain enough for us. Then he says, indeed, the questioner who at the end is told to do as the Samaritan did, is the one to whom the parable comes home directly. One cannot define one's neighbor. One can only be a neighbor. For you and I, when we think of this concept of loving God and loving our neighbor as ourselves, instead of thinking through, hey, is this person my neighbor? Am I supposed to answer or help them? Yes, the answer is yes, you are. But the thing we should be asking ourselves is how can we be neighborly? Kind of the idea of of what would you prefer others to do for you? If you were that man beaten on the side of the road, what would you desire in your fellow man? I would desire a neighbor, someone to be neighborly rather than watch people walk by. Now, I think this warrants a point we go back to Galatians chapter 5. You know, Paul said that we are to love our neighbor. We are members of one another. And he's writing to the church within the body, and he makes this point to the body, God's people, that we should be neighborly, love one another, and serve one another within the context of the church. Paul says this again in Galatians 5. He says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. 
For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But he adds this in verse 15. And here's the warning within that command to love one another. He says, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So Paul gives this warning to God's people. Here's the command. Here's what you should be doing. But within the context of the body of Christ, we're members of one another. He says, you should be really sure to love one another within the church, within the household of faith. If you don't, if you bite and devour one another, watch out. You're not going to be consumed by one another. But then we're going to look more like people outside the world. God's people that should be full of the Spirit, loving one another. If there's anybody that God's children should be loving, it's his brother or her brother and sister in Christ. Before we even have the ability, before we even look outside the walls of how we should love someone out there, if we're not having, if we don't have the ability to love even our brother and sister within the body, how do we do that? It's a farce. And we look more like the world out there that's not loving than what we should be within the church. But the church, the bride of Christ, it's meant to be pure and clean without spot and blemish, clothed in white, without stain or blemish or wrinkle. That's what the bride of Christ, the church, is meant to look like in a world that desperately needs to see clearly God's light and his love. But sadly, too often God's people were marred with contempt, not because of our righteousness and the way we love one another, it's because of the way we scorn one another. So we're given a warning there. And it bears a point in the text, church. If we're to be loving our neighbor as ourselves, first and foremost, that begins with God's people sitting right next to us in the places we gather and even outside the walls when we get together. Galatians 6.10, Paul says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are, who are of the household of faith. Paul makes it clear the command, love your neighbor as yourself, that is everyone, but he says especially those that are in the household of faith. Yes, God's church is more important than your job. God's church is more important than your hobby. God's church is more important than everything. And that's not an appeal for you to come and serve God's church. That is an important thing, but you can understand from God's word. The emphasis that he puts on his church and the way we should respond to one another. 1 John 3.10, he says this, and now I'll move on. He says, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. <laughs> that, is, that is direct from the Apostle John. The way we love one another within the body makes clear who are the children of God and who look more like the children of the devil. My desire is for me, Cody, to look like a child of God. So I want to love God's people well, as well as everyone else. I don't always do that as well as I should. At least I don't believe I don't do. I could do better in this area, but it's something to think through and ponder. So now what does it look like? If we were to put this into practice, practically speaking, what, what, what does it look like to love a neighbor? If we have the general statement, we understand who our neighbor is, how then can we be loving our neighbor as ourself? Well, the most tangible expression of loving others is an act of sacrifice. Any and every time someone 
does something sacrificial, it is an expression of love. We don't sacrifice things for things that we don't love. Now, it could be people, it could be your job, it could be your kids, it could be hobbies. We sacrifice a lot of things for a lot of things. When it comes to others and putting it in that context, yes, the most tangible expression of loving others is an act of sacrifice. First John 4, 9 He says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. So he says, God's love is made manifest in Jesus, his son coming to earth. That new song that we just sang earlier, absolutely loved it. Loved it. The name of Jesus, that's the thing that brings us all together But that's the thing that enables us. The name of Jesus, the person of Jesus. God's love made manifest among us. And what did Jesus come here to do? In the display of that love. 1 John 3, 16 through 18. He says, by this we know love. That he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need. Yet closes his heart against them. How does God's love abide in him? In all that we've been talking about, Paul gets it. I mean, isn't that a clear teaching from the parable of the Good Samaritan? Right there. If we see, if we have the world's goods and we see a brother in need, but we close our heart against him, how does God's love abide in us is what he gets right at us. And he says in verse 18, little children, the imperative, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So we should be putting our love in action. So what are some ways? I've got three categories this morning that I think a lot of our lives will fall into as far as how we can do this. But we should seek to be sacrificial indeed with our time, with our money, and with our talents. So being sacrificial worth our time. So what are some things that we give our time to? We give our time to work, to school, hobbies, if you're married, we give her time to date nights. At least you should be giving time to date night. It's important for dating, for marriage relationships. We give our time to sporting events, concerts, TV. We certainly give time to social media. You can probably move that back up the list. We give time to family. We do give time to the church. But I purposely put that one at the bottom of the list. Because oftentimes that's where the church falls. But we give our time to many things. And sometimes when it comes to serving in God's church, right? Remember, especially the household of faith. And don't get me wrong, this is not an appeal for you to stop doing something else and come serve the church. My heart's desire is that the Lord would prompt your heart to respond in obedience to him, not because I'm asking you to do it. Or not because you ever hear Brandon or anyone else, or elders, ask you to serve. If we ask you to serve, it is simply trying to prompt an obedience in you to what the Lord would be leading you to do as God's people. We should understand. We should be doing that, especially within the household of faith. But we give our time to many different things. We make our own schedules, but a lot of time, it's, I don't have time to do that because I have these things to do. And understanding, we have busy lives. I'm understanding that more and more now than I ever did with a child. Praise the Lord, I got some time before they're teenagers. So for you that have teenagers, I have much more compassion for you than I ever have. There's many people I could probably seek some forgiveness on. On the way I viewed you before, I understood that aspect 
of the demand on time. But what does it look like to be sacrificial with our time? To be, to be a sacrifice is to give up something we desire to do something on behalf of someone else. That's the nature of sacrifice. So when it comes to our time, think through vacation days from work. The number one thing that we give our time to if you're employed is your work. Typically at a minimum. If you're a full-time employee, minimum. Eight hours a day, you're at work. Another eight hours of the day, you're asleep. The other eight are just kind of bounced in between. Well, we give a lot of our time to work. Depending on where you work, you get vacation days. Why do we often take vacation? Because we want to leave work, but what do we do with those vacation days? We go on vacation. Right? We get away, and we go do something for ourselves so we can replenish in some ways. But what would it look like to be sacrificial with your time, and you take vacation days from work, and you go serve someone? When was the last time you took maybe a Thursday and a Friday off from work to have a long weekend to go serve at someone's house, to go do a construction project or help someone repaint their house? But if you sacrifice a trip to the deer lease or a long family weekend outside of town for helping a neighbor with cleaning their yard, cutting up a tree that fell down, there's a lot of that in the area right now. But those are tangible ways that we can sacrifice our time to show love to our neighbor. If you're a couple in here, what if you sacrifice the date night on behalf of someone else? There was a, recently I was visiting a journey group and, um, and that particular night they were going through their goals for the year. Um, and very encouraging, I, was, I enjoyed sitting down and just hearing the goals of different people in the group. And it came to um, this one couple and the, the mother, she was... Um, she was lamenting just their schedule. Just they, just, just they have no margin. Just time is gone. They're always doing things. They have some renovation at their house they're trying to accomplish. They just don't have time to do it because of all these other things. They have a, a, a teenage boy, and he just demands so much of their time. And as she's sharing this struggle and what her goal would be is to be able to find time for some different things, someone else in the group piped up. Piped up, wrong. It's a negative way to say that. Spoke up. And just offered, said, hey, we'll take, we'll take your kid. Let us, let us keep your kid for a night. And y'all go out and have, have a date. Y'all go out, do something together. Get a restful night's sleep. And I was so encouraged just in that moment. She wasn't prompted by anything other than the Lord in that moment. She saw a need that was shared within the context of her journey group, her community. A need was shared, and she didn't even ask for that. She just offered it up. Hey, let us keep your kids. I will sacrifice a night to hang out with your kid so y'all can go. It's like, what a wonderful, tangible way to sacrifice your time to show love to a neighbor. Now, I do want to ask, if you're watching right now, have you done that? Have you acted on that offer? Because there's the other side of it. A lot of times... Just a sidebar to that, whenever someone, hey, let me do this for you. Or, hey, I'll watch your kids so y'all can go to a date night. The other side of that is allow that to happen. Because oftentimes, how, you know, hey, let me, buy your, let me buy your lunch. No, man, I'm good. I got it. Why do we do that? It's pride. Absolutely, 100%. For whatever reason, why not allow them to be a blessing and take them up on that offer so that you can be blessed and they can be blessed by blessing you? Blessings all around, but a tangible picture of loving your neighbor as yourself.
as we seek to sacrifice our time. Now, the second thing is money. Now, money is a challenging subject. Jesus says this in uh, Matthew 6, 19 through 21. I don't have this for you up here, but I'll read it for you real quick. Jesus says this. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. He says, for your treasure is there your heart will be also. So he just gives us this, 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 he kind of hits on money and he wants us to understand we don't need treasure on earth. He says we're moth and rust destroy. We need to keep treasure in heaven. That's where our heart needs to go. I've heard it said before, maybe you have as well, that the number one competition for our heart is our bank account or your wallet. But so much stock is tied to that number. As that number rises and falls, our anxiety and our worry can rise and fall. Our joy and contentment can rise and fall as that number within our bank account goes up and goes down. And that's all product of misplaced worship and where we seek to find our trust and find our security. And Jesus says, don't lay up for yourselves treasure here. You should desire treasure in heaven. Now, he continues in verse 24 of Matthew 6. I do have this. He says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, why is it, you may be thinking, we're talking about loving others, loving your neighbor as yourself. Why aren't we talking about money all of a sudden? But money is a very tangible way, thing that we can be sacrificial with to convey that love for other people. But money is also one of those things that chains us away from pursuing the Lord and pursuing ways and viewing people with a way to help people to love God and love others because we can be holding on to this thing called money. That's why for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It drives so much wrongdoing. So Jesus makes clear the tension that we have around our money. But now another familiar parable that I would like to walk through with you. It's in Matthew 19. I don't have this for you up on the screen. But this illustrates this idea very well for us. And there's a reason. We're going to tie this around here in just a second. But it's the uh, parable of the rich young ruler. And he comes to Jesus and he asks Jesus a question, much like the lawyer, but his, his emphasis, his his uh, motivation is different than the lawyer. But he comes and he says, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? So he understands I need a good deed in order to have eternal life. And Jesus responds, he says, if you would enter life, he says, keep the commandments. The man says, which ones? Good question. Commandments are which ones I got to keep? Note this, what Jesus responds and Jesus says, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Note what he includes in that list. Then the young man said to him, all these I have kept, what, shall, what do I still lack? So the rich young ruler, he understands, okay, I've done all those. Something else. And he understands there's something else I got to do. I've kept all those commands. What's the other thing that I've got to do in order to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. See Jesus' response? 
Don't store up yourself treasures on earth where moth, moth and rust destroys. Store up for yourself treasure in heaven. Jesus tells this rich young ruler, ruler, get treasure in heaven. The way you do that is you sell everything you have, you give it to the poor, and you come and follow me. And what did the man respond? When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. See, the rich young ruler revealed who his master was. He gave himself away at that point. But if we go back and look at the commands that Jesus said, I want to read them for you again. Which ones do I follow? Jesus says, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. He says, honor your father and mother. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the other side of the Ten Commandments that have to do with what? How we respond to everyone else. What was the rich man and ruler's problem? He got the wrong side. He got the good side, but not the other side as well. It's love your neighbor as yourself. I've done that, but I feel like there's something else. Jesus says there is. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And he couldn't do it because he had great wealth. See, when it comes to these two commandments, church, well, you, you can't have one without the other. They are in unison together. It is certainly love God, love people. You can't love people in the way that would earn you eternal life if you can't love God. And one of the number one things that hinder us in that, according to this rich young ruler, is the treasures on earth that we have. So now, continuing on in that parable, right after the parable ends, the disciples, they heard this. They're with Jesus as he says this. The disciples heard this and they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? They're like, Jesus, that's challenging. What? Sell everything you have to the poor and come follow me? And the disciples, like, they didn't really think, maybe, did I, I think I did that. I've, I've done that, I'm here. But their response is, who then can be saved? And Jesus replied, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Back to that song, church. If we come to a point where it's Jesus, if that rich man ruler really understood who he was talking to, he would have dropped everything, just like Peter did, just like John did, just like every other disciple. They understood something different about this man that just called them. And they left everything to follow him. So the tension we feel as regards to this, it loosens the more we lean into the Lord. It's a matter of trust. It's a matter of abiding. So how then, long way to get around, understanding our tie to our money, but how then can we be sacrificial with our money? Some practical ways. Well, the money that you would have spent on vacation, spend that money on sending a student or a kid to camp. There are many needs within the body, some students and some families that are struggling. It's difficult for them to send their student or their kid to camp. A way that you can be sacrificial with your money is provide a way. Give a scholarship for a kid to go to camp. There's a tangible expression of love for your neighbor. 
You can pay for someone's gas at the pump. On a particular week, instead of getting your nails done or getting that massage or playing that round of golf. If you're playing golf right now, you're hardcore. Maybe, maybe in the spring. But instead of, instead of spending that money on, on, on a round of golf, you'll buy somebody's groceries. Buy a box of diapers for a young mother or a family that's in need. Easy, tangible, small sacrifices of your money to love your neighbor well. You could also, in a particular month, if you, if, you, if you budget well and you have savings that come out every single month, what if on a particular month you take those savings and you buy a stack of Brookshire's gift cards? Many times we have people coming to our church knowing that we help those in need and they just simply need some groceries or they need some gas. What a wonderful way and a blessing to be able to hand them a Brookshire's gift card with no strings attached and say, hey, go get you some groceries. Go buy you some gas. All you, were, all you have to do is just sacrifice a month's worth of savings, buy a stack of gift cards, bring them to the building, and just say, here, bless somebody. It's a wonderful encourage. That would encourage my heart. I know it would encourage our staff so well. It would bless our church body to be that kind of a blessing. And that's a tangible way to be sacrificial with our money. Now, thirdly, I want to be sacrificial with our talents. I'll try and run through this quickly. But sacrificial with our talents. So there's a difference now between talents and gifts or gifts of the Spirit. When we come to Christ, we receive His Spirit. His Spirit imbues us with a gift to be used for the church. 1 Corinthians 7, 7 says, Each of us has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. 1 Peter 4, 10, As each has received a gift, we should use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. But the reason for the giving of that gift or the manifestation of the Spirit and getting that gift is 1 Corinthians 14, 5. Paul makes clear, he says, you get that gift so that the church may be built up. We're given spiritual gifts to build up God's church. But now there's a difference between getting a gift or having a gift from the Spirit and having a talent or skill. Years ago when I played on, on stage, you know, I was on the worship team. Many, many people don't know that. For years, I served on the worship team and I played guitar. And I, I wasn't very good. But people would tell me that I was, I was good. And I'm like, thanks, so encouraging, but I'm not because I, I know. We, but nonetheless, people say, man, that's, 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 a, that's a gift. It's a spiritual gift to be able to do what you do. And I'm like, no, it's, it's not. This is a talent. This is an ability that I have painstakingly spent hours getting better at. A talent and ability or skill is something that you and I enjoy doing that we develop, develop over time. Spiritual gift is something that comes absolutely natural to you. It doesn't expend energy. You just do it naturally. That's the difference between a gift and a talent. So many of us have talents. We should be sacrificial with those talents. When it comes to our gifts, we just should be using those. shouldn't be a sacrifice to use your gift. But talents, yes. Skills, ability. That's photography. It's gardening, songwriting, graphic design, carpentry work, metalwork, landscaping. It's interior decorating. A myriad of things that we do, we have an ability to do or a skill to do, becomes our talent that we can sacrifice the use of that talent on behalf of others to show how much we love others. The thing that you do at work, that thing, whether you think it to be or not, is a skill or an ability that can be employed outside of your work. But sadly, too often, 
do, do we want to come home on the weekend and do the thing that we did during the week at work? Generally speaking, no. Why? Because it's work. Man, I did that all week. I labored at that all week. I'm tired of doing that thing. That was work. I come home, I don't want to do work. But the reality is, for many of us in this room, depending on where we're at and the job that we have, we've likely spent decades doing that thing. We've become masters at that skill. But for some reason, outside of the workplace, we have no desire to use the skill that we've mastered. Why? Because it doesn't pay us. It's become work. It's a drudgery to go to work and do this thing that we've become masters at. We don't enjoy it at work. But we get paid to do it at work. And it exhausts us to think about doing that thing outside of work. But nonetheless, it's a skill that we have mastered that could be useful to bless someone. So we can be sacrificial with that talent or that skill outside of our workplace to give that away to someone with no strings attached whatsoever to bless someone in need. If you work in a trade, electricians, plumbers, HVAC, carpentry, where, I mean, you guys, you, you have an opportunity because there's needs. But you can be sacrificial with that. And when we do that, you find yourself doing all three. You're sacrificing your time. You're sacrificing your talent. And depending on material costs, you could be sacrificing your money as well. But what a wonderful way and a tangible way to love your neighbor as yourself. What are some other ways that we can be sacrificial with our talents? If you were a stellar athlete in high school, maybe you played some college sport, you have a great understanding of a particular sport, why don't you sacrifice your talent in that way and coach a little league team? I promise you it's going to be sacrificial in many different ways. But what a way for God's people that have a talent, a skill, an understanding of the sport can sacrifice some time as well to pour into some younger kids, to teach them a sport, to help them develop playing something, to show them the love of Christ. You also have watching parents that you have opportunity to show the love of Christ. And if you've ever been to a Little League game, there's a lot of parents that need it. But that is a wonderful way to use some talent and some skill and be sacrificial with it to pour in and love your neighbor well. Right now on Saturday mornings for the next six weeks, I think next five weeks now, we have individuals that sacrifice their Saturday mornings. They come with an ability of skill in photography, songwriting, and gardening right now, and they're giving that away to love their neighbor well in this ministry that we started called Cultivate. And as we look to the future of that ministry, there's other things that we would like to incorporate. The next time we offer these classes, it's not going to be photography, songwriting, and gardening every single time. There are many other skills and talents that this body has that can give that away so we can be sacrificial with a Saturday morning and our knowledge to give it away so that other people can be developed in that skill to learn that skill and potentially then give that away as well. And you see it reciprocate from that point if our heart's motive is to love people well. If you love to cook, do it well. Provide meals for your neighbors. If you don't cook so well, but you're a fantastic host, find that person that does cook well, you'll partner together and host someone. Host the family and bless someone. And again, all three of these can come into play. You're sacrificing your time, you're sacrificing your money for the groceries and the meal, and your talent in cooking and hosting to make people feel loved. Now to wrap up, church, 
The idea when it comes to loving your neighbor as yourself is simply to serve one another. As Paul said, we'll come back to this scripture one more time. This is the third time we've read this scripture this morning. And this time with a different emphasis, but... For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Again, the most tangible expression of loving others is being sacrificial. But we should be serving one another with that in view. How can I sacrifice some things to serve other people? It shouldn't always be easy for us. Because it was not easy for Jesus to go to the cross. There were some things that Jesus did that were certainly easy to him in the way he served God's people. But ultimately, he gave up everything so that you and I could live. But in that, as we come to him, he then bids us we should give up everything. He's not, I'm, he's not, I'm not saying that God is telling you you need to go sell everything you got, give it to the poor so you can follow Jesus. It's not at all what I'm saying. But our heart's position should be a willingness to, if God so did say, we would. I certainly can't determine that for you. But we can be sacrificial with what we have so that we can continue to be a blessing to another. That should be within the household of faith, but also certainly outside of these walls. Who's our neighbor? Anyone and everyone we would ever come into contact with is our neighbor. I pray that we see them as such and pay attention to some of the needs and be willing to act on them. Amen? Amen. I pray this is an encouragement for us all. I know it has been for me, but also challenging. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you for this morning and, and our time together, Lord. I thank you that you have summed up the entirety of your law in these two commands, Lord. And they're simple to say. In some ways, they're simple to understand, but they can be immensely difficult in our flesh to walk in them, Lord. To fully love you the way that we should. To fully love others the way that we should, Lord. And just, I pray that you help us to see tangible expressions of that, Lord. That we don't view people within just this general scope, Lord, that we would see individuals as who they are, where they are, and the needs that they have, Lord. And if we have the ability to help, I pray that you give us the eyes to see that. Give us the wisdom and discernment to see how. Just as that, that Samaritan, he, he knew how. He saw a clear need, and he knew he could meet it, and he was willing to do so. And I pray that's my heart. And I pray that for your people here in this community, in the Wills Point community, Lord. That our church really would be, not because of a place to come, but our church truly would be a people that are willing to do that for others outside of these walls. What a difference you can make through us for your glory and the good of others, Lord. And just pray that for us all. Lord, we love you and we thank you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.